Welcome to the Iron Mind Podcast. Join me, Josh Brumley, as we explore the minds of those who forged their paths through legal battles, business triumphs, and creative conquests. In each episode, we sit down with inspiring individuals who sharpened their resolve in the fires of entrepreneurship and law. From lawyers breaking barriers to entrepreneurs overcoming obstacles, we uncover the stories behind their iron wills and innovative minds. Get ready for thought-provoking conversations, practical insights, and actionable advice. This is the Iron Mind Podcast. When attorneys, I can tell the really experienced attorneys and the inexperienced attorneys that come before me. Um, the, the experienced ones know the medical records. They know their case. They know the, the background records. Now, sometimes they weren't aware of something, and I don't really blame the attorney for that. Sometimes it's the client, but they just weren't aware of it. <clears throat> but you, the, I can assure you that in every case that's mediated, the defense has probably had a paralegal or a nurse go through the medical records and make a chronology. Or the doctor they hired does that. You know, their their CR35 doctor, their defense medical exam doctor. And they have it. Oftentimes the plaintiff does the same, but oftentimes the plaintiff doesn't. And, and the plaintiff is entering mediation just saying, I'm going to wing it. I'm going to expect the mediator who I know is a good mediator to be able to f- fix it. It can happen. Mistake. I mean, you need to go into the mediation knowing your case, knowing its strengths, knowing its weaknesses, and um, hopefully giving the mediator arguments he or she can use to take into the other room. Because basically the mediator is the plaintiff's advocate when they go in the defense caucus room and is the defense advocate when they go in the plaintiff's caucus room. And I had a case where in the middle of the mediation, there was a liability issue. I don't think it was super clear from the beginning, but in the middle of mediation, the defense attorney said, can we go into a public session? So this was in person. It wasn't Zoom, but it could just as easily have been Zoom. And they say, I, we've done some research on why we think they've got problems on liability, and I'd rather explain it to them directly, which as a mediator makes total sense. I mean, for them to convey it to me and hope that I can convey it to their side the same way they conveyed it to me, isn't going to happen. That's, that's unrealistic. So I, I said, well, let me ask the plaintiff and see if they're willing to do that. And they were. And I told the plaintiff, don't feel like you have to respond. They're not expecting that. They just wanted to give you their pitch. And they did. And it was a very effective presentation. I don't really remember now if the plaintiff responded or not, but the case ended up settling. And, and that, I think that brief public session was very helpful Another time to do public sessions is if they've never taken your client's deposition or the jester hasn't met your client, you think your client will make a really good witness. And, and so you can do a brief public session. So, And usually the way I orchestrate that is I, I don't want to turn the defense loose in asking questions right. of the plaintiff. But you I say, let me ask questions. And I find out you know from the defense what they'd like to know, and I'll ask the questions. Um, but so that's... Uh, getting ahead of the game, but it's, it's, it's at times where a public session makes sense. Um, but so be prepared, know your case, know, uh, know the medical records, mediated case where the issue is whether the person ever complained about low back within the first several months or year or whatever of the accident, because low back was now an issue. Medical records were this thick. Uh, L and I was involved. 
So, you know, they do tons of records. They're not organized. The plaintiff's attorney never went through them. So during the mediation, I took the time. We split up the records to go through it looking for it. We found it. We found an entry, which was all I needed to go, one entry to, to, to go to the defense and say, so there is something there. And so it, it, we were able to get the case settled. But the plaintiff's attorney should have been aware of that. And it's just, again, if it's a small case, I understand why they wouldn't. And every once in a while you get something like that. The case isn't worth much, but there's a lot of medical records. And you just don't go through it. And that, that's understandable. It's, it's, it's not, it's not cost effective. But when you're asking for lots of money, you need to go through that. So the next tip, and I, I, I've touched upon it, um, you need to advocate for your client, but you need to, I think you need to be candid and work with the mediator and be open to the mediator's suggestions. That doesn't mean you have to agree with the mediator. It doesn't mean you have to follow them. You need to be open to them. And in talking to your client, I think in advance of the mediation, you should be telling your client something about the mediator, who he is. Hopefully you've done your homework or you've worked with that mediator before. And to say that mediator may totally agree with everything we're doing. He may have suggestions. Uh, he's going to be candid with you. He doesn't have an ax to grind. He, uh, um, he'd like to get the case settled. I know. And as you know, with me, I don't twist arms. Um, I just lay it out and let you make the decision. It doesn't mean I don't have an opinion. It doesn't mean I might not have thoughts as to what you might do, but I, I'm not going to twist your client's arm. Um, but so that's, that's important. And it gets back to what I talked about earlier. Somehow you've got to pick a mediator that you have confidence in. And it's easy if you've used the person before, not so easy if you haven't, but it can be done. Um, I've had third tip. I've had attorneys, not recently. I had one attorney would not let his client talk. This was pre zoom. Although it would happen with zoom do, um, they didn't want the client talking to me. I went, I need to understand from your client. You know, I, you can tell me all you want attorney, what your client's going to say and how your attorney, your client will come across. But as a mediator, the defense is going to ask me, what'd you think of the client? What am I going to tell him? The attorney wouldn't let me talk to him. That's not going to bode well for getting the case settled. Uh, I, I, you know, if, if your client talks to me and he, he's, he's bumbling and I think he's gonna make a terrible witness. I'm not going to go to the defense and say he's going to make a terrible witness, but I won't go to the defense and say, he'll make a great witness. Um, we'll just kind of skip over that. <laughs> but the other is I need to create rapport with your client. How do I create rapport? If you're putting a, a tape over his mouth, um, if I can't talk to him, to, to your client, and I guess an attorney could say, well, why do you need to create rapport? Well, again, think of the purpose of mediation. It's to negotiate a settlement of the case. It takes give or take, give and take. Um, mediation settlements in general involve compromise, unless you're in the unusual situation of a policy limits case. It involves compromise. It's not necessarily equal compromise, which bothers plaintiffs a lot. We came down this much. They only came up this. Well, that's the way it works. You know, usually you demand a lot more. Um, but so if you're going to, to do compromise, then there's got to be some rapport. The, the client has to be able to develop confidence in me. And, and particularly in the situation where the attorney tells me, on the side, 
I need you to really burst my client's bubble and expectations. Now, generally, if you think if that's what they want me to do, they would do, give me every tool available to be able to communicate. And I've had some attorneys tell me that in advance, and then it comes to mediation, and they don't let me do anything. Or, or they fight me at, at every turn, which is crazy, crazy. Um, Zoom mediations in particular, next tip. If there are key documents, have them queued up, ready to screen share. And if you don't know screen share, get familiar with screen share. If you don't know what I'm talking about, talk to the mediator in advance and work with the mediator to, to figure that out. Um, and highlight things. Don't just stick up a chart note that, that, that's all text, but you, know, you can highlight it to point those things out. In that case I was telling you about that we ultimately settled for 850000 that changed attorneys, I used ScreenShare. I took the things from that lengthy 50-page report that the plaintiff's attorney was pointing out to me. I highlighted stuff. I shared it with them. I showed this is what this means. This is what this means. Um, so, and if, you, if it's an in-person mediation, it just means bring the things with you. Um, the, um, I think in next tip, consider... Again, depending on the value or potential value of the case, uh, again, I repeat, if it's a small case, you don't do this. But this day and age, civil arbitration is now a 100,000 limit in most counties. And if you, th so bigger, larger cases are being presented in arbitration. But if you think you have a $100,000 case or you're going to ask the arbitrator for 100000 as an arbitrator, I'm going to say, well, give me $100,000 worth of evidence. Just don't come and wing it and say that. So I expect, if, if you're going to ever, I expect almost an IME from the plaintiff, a forensic report. I want it to address the defense medical exam. Spend the money, spend a few thousand dollars to do that. Um, don't give me declarations with conclusory opinions that are just enough to get by a summary judgment or something. Uh, your, your expert needs to be persuasive. Persuade me so I can persuade the other side. Uh, but give serious thought with Zoom to having a key witness, a key expert come in person, you know, on Zoom. Say, listen, we've got a mediation from 9.30 to 1.30 or 9.30 to 5.30 if it's an all day and find out a time that he'll, he or she will be available to talk on Zoom and do it. I, it could be just with the mediator. But if it goes well, as a mediator, I would want to in invite that communication to be with the defense as well. But you play that one by ear as to how it goes. Um, so give thought to that. There's, there's, um, and that would be better than a report. Well, it's better than a report if the defense is listening, if they're participating. If not, well, you need a report. Um, uh, and the doctor would have to go through all those records to be able to articulate things anyway. So you're probably paying the money yeah, you'd that probably, you would pay for the report yeah. anyway. And in many instances, they've done a report. but So so you don't need the doctor for, for a lengthy thing. It, it may be the doctor's done his report and the defense has done a, a defense medical. And what you want the doctor to comment on is the opinions that the defense doctor did. Because that may not be in his report. But then he can add that and supplement it. So you have to think about, is that worth it? The larger the case, the more it's worth it. Um, and bear this in mind. 
I don't have exact statistics. This is more um, anecdotal. But my belief and understanding is at the end of the day, about 95% of personal injury cases settle before without going to trial. They may settle on the courthouse steps, but they settle. So if 95% or even 90% are settling, why would you not invest the time and money into preparing for mediation? I've had people say, well, I want to keep that out. And I don't, I don't want that piece of information out because I want to hold that back for trial. And I go, that's your call. It's a strategy call. But if 90 to 95% settle, if you hold it back, you're not, you're not getting the advantage of that as, as, as influencing the value of your case. So is it really that critical that, that you don't tell them? And particularly if discovery cutoff has come and gone. But there can be some circumstances where the, the plaintiff just feels or the defense feels that's a real smoking gun and I want to keep it to myself. But this goes both ways. Um, but you have to give some thought to that as to put your efforts into settling. And a few years ago, I haven't seen it so much lately, on the Whistler, excuse me, WSAJ listservs, people said, don't even try to settle your case. Just try it. Now, I think that's a great way for young attorneys to get experience. And if you don't try the cases, you're not going to get the experience. If you don't try the cases, you're not going to get a reputation with the defense firms and the insurance companies that you'll take the case to trial. So there is a lot of value to that. But it's not always in your client's best interest to do that. And as you know, we have to always focus on what's in our client's best interest. And even though maybe I'd like to go to trial on it, is that really what my client wants? Is that going to be the benefit? Is my client a gambler? Can, can the client take the risk of going from a low verdict to a higher verdict? <clears throat> Those are all important questions to ask. Um, but nowadays I don't see that so much. I, I, and maybe it's the quality of the mediators has improved to a point where people are getting good settlements with mediation. I, I mean, I don't really have an answer for that. Well, and the arbitration limits are much higher now too. So that changes the evaluation of what's going to go to trial and what doesn't. This next tip I, I more or less talked about, it's like give the mediator arguments he can use on the other side. Um, I've mediated cases when I was an advocate where I had co-counsel that was real experienced. And they always had, every time the mediator came into the room, they had more arguments to give them. We'll tell here, we're going to come down to this and here, give them this argument, give them that. Now I have mixed feelings about that as a mediator. I'd like to know everything. I don't mind that we dole it out. Um, if that's what the plaintiff wants me to do, but I'd rather have the flexibility to use those arguments as I, that I think are best to use because sometimes someone may give me an argument saying, talk about this and they're holding back this, but it would work better if that were combined with this as opposed to, okay, next time, because the person will say, well, we've already argued that. I don't, I don't need to deal with that again. Um, next tip, no surprises at mediation. And what I really mean by that I can't tell you historically the number of times we've come to mediation and the plaintiff's never made a demand. I go, well, do you know how this works? The defense attorney takes the demand of the insurance adjuster. The insurance adjuster has to evaluate it. The insurance adjuster writes up 
a recommendation that goes to his superiors, they round table and they give authority. Takes time. If they don't even know what you're demanding until they come into the mediation, then you're wasting time. I and mean, they, they, they can't possibly address that. Or they've made a demand, but they haven't given them the details on the wage loss. Or there's still they have fifty thousand dollars in medical bills, but there's another fifty that they present for the first time at mediation. Now there are times when that can't be avoided because you didn't have them, especially this day and age. It takes so long to get medical records. Um, but as a plaintiff attorney, don't think the defense is going to consider that additional fifty thousand in medical bills that you're just giving them for the first time. They won't. So. Will they maybe increase their offer a little bit to offset it? Yeah, but it won't be a like for like by any means. So uh, surprises don't work. And, and I would highly recommend, in fact, when I send out my initial uh, um, uh, letter, engagement letter, I tell them, make your settlement demand well before the mediation. Give the insurance company an opportunity to assess it. And, and what happens a lot is sometimes people just make a policy limits demand. But th at the time they make the demand, it was pre-lawsuit. They don't even know what the policy limits were. And does that mean that the defense and the insurance company can't kind of guess what they're demanding based on how it's presented? No, they probably can. But then you're putting control on, on, the, on the defense. They're saying, well, I assume he wants 100000 when really you want 200000 well, they've just evaluated their whole case based on $100,000. you are not going to get them to go to $200,000. So no surprises. Not like TV shows. No. You, want, you want it lined up, teed up, perfectly ready for trial before you get to mediation. No that, surprises. That would, that would be my biggest tip, yes. Um, next, if you have subrogated carriers, and in other words, um, as a young attorney, if your client has had his own insurance, health insurance or PIP, pay bills, and they have a lien. It's you want to like have talked to them in advance of the mediation, or LNI's involved. It's it's a combination workers comp PI case. You need well with LNI, you have to have someone from the Department of Labor and Industries available at the mediation because basically they have to. If you're asking them to accept a discount, they have to approve the settlement. So you don't necessarily have to have the agreements all made in advance, but you need to have touched base. You need to have given them information. And when it comes to a subrogated carrier, I always tell, I always told my clients, I wear two hats in these cases. Hat one is, is, is the first hat is the one I wear when I'm negotiating with a defendant. The second hat is the one I wear when I negotiate with my first party carriers, my subrogated carriers. That second hat is going to look an awful lot like I'm the defense attorney. And in fact, if the defense attorney has a report from a doctor that really hurts us, I give that report to the other side and I tell, or not to the other side, but to my subrogated carriers, I say, I'm worried about this. Um, so, so you need to have given that so they can give it some thought. And that, and just to take that idea to the next reasonable conclusion, by giving a defense IME, for example, to the PIP adjuster or to the health insurance uh, or to L&I, you're saying, these are things I'm scared about. 
can you reduce what your lien is so that we can get this case resolved and you'll get some money rather than us take it to trial and then lose everything? <clears throat> yeah, that, that's essentially what you do. But there's you should really go over that with the mediator as to how to do it. Sometimes it's best coming from the mediator. Um, the mediator would contact the adjuster for PIP? It just depends. PIP? Well, first of all, with PIP, usually it comes from the plaintiff's attorney. Mm -hmm. But sometimes the mediator has to jump in. You know, and, and uh, so if they're available by phone, the mediator can contact them during the mediation. Gotcha, I see. Um, and, and that can be very important. Um, there are cases where you can get the subrogated carrier to drop thousands and thousands of dollars off their lien, you know, based on those things. And particularly if there's an issue over um, liability where there's a concern it could be a defense verdict or significant comparative negligence because the case law is such that if the subrogated carrier is governed by Washington state law as opposed to federal law, ERISA, if there's any discount for liability whatsoever, if there if any comparative negligence, the, the subrogated interest is zero because your client will not be made whole. So um, know the law on that. You know, be up on that for dealing with your subrogated carrier. Um, now, with L and I, there's a formula, a statutory formula that that's followed. But if there's a, if it's a case where it looks like either because the policy limits aren't high enough, or there are issues about the the nature of the treatment, uh, uh, the amount of the treatment, um, uh, whether it's re related. What a mediator frequently does, if if it works to the client's advantage, the plaintiff's advantage, is suggest a settlement where the department gets a third, the client gets a third, the attorney gets a third. That's not an unusual compromise that the department is used to hearing and in the right case more or less agrees to it. The tougher element in those settlements is getting the, I think it's called a set-aside, I always forget the name, but a lot of times... Ellen and I will say, okay, this is how we'll deal with this, but we're going to assume that if this person needs continuing treatment or continuing time loss, the next $50,000 worth of treatment or time loss, we don't pay out on. Well, now if your case is closed and you know the plaintiff is never going to reopen the claim, you don't care so much about that. But if it's not, that's a significant area of negotiation and there's creative things that can be done. Um, then I, second to last, I can't tell you the number of times I've been in a mediation where I go into the plaintiff's room and the plaintiff's attorney says, that defense attorney is a horse's petard. He's terrible in discovery, never gives us anything, uh, you can't trust him, Bob, on and on and on and on, on. Then I go in the defense room and the defense attorney says, you know, I can't tell you how much of an A. Uh, you know, uh, a hole, a hole. <laughs> that plaintiff is he never, he's always late with this. He's late with that. You can't trust him. And it's like, well, which is it <laughs> to yeah. myself? And I like the plaintiff's attorney and I like the defense attorney. They both, both seem honorable and straightforward. So I, you know, I don't know, but my attitude, and this is not a tip just for what to do at mediation time, but it's how you handle the case from the beginning. My firm belief is you always be polite and professional. Um, you always turn the other cheek. Now, I know a lot of attorneys will disagree with me vehemently on that. You know, you got to take a stand. 
Well, and I say always, generally. Maybe I should use generally. There, there can be exceptions. But when it gets down to mediation, if you've got an attorney that the defense hates, the insurance company has been dissed by this person, and they don't like them. And then you have an attorney that they really like. In a close case, are they going to fight to give a few more thousand dollars to the attorney they hate or to the attorney they like? It may be they won't give it to anyone. But if they like you, they're going to go the extra mile to see if they can get that case settled. If they don't like you, if they don't trust you, if they, they think that you're the worst of what the bar represents, they'll say, try the case. We don't care. Yeah. And so it can't hurt you to be polite and professional. Uh, I, you can't take things personally. You can, but it's a mistake to take things personally. I had a case, and this is, I, I actually co-tried this with the, my, this very senior attorney that I shared office space with. And this is the most mellow man you would ever meet. But for whatever the reason, the defense attorney pushed this guy's buttons. And so in motions, and there are a lot of motions in this case, he'd always attack us. It, it would always be like we intentionally did something wrong. That's not, I would never respond that way. I, I just respond more neutrally about things. It, but that really bugged my, my co-counsel. And we got to trial my co-counsel just couldn't see straight, basically. And the defense attorney in trial was Mr. Polite. So the jury didn't know anything about what kind of a jack-off he was. Um, and it hurt us. I mean, we, 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 got a, we were a prevailing party, but we didn't get the kind of money we wanted to get. And my, client, and the, my co-counsel kind of lost it at trial. Um, so um, you can't take things personally. You right. just have to be professional at all times. It works your client's best point. Final tip, be willing to walk away. Hmm. That may be the most important. Come to a mediation. You can come hopeful the case will settle. But, and you can listen to the mediator and be flexible and be willing to, to manipulate, you know, the way you see the case. But you can't come in there and say, I'm going to settle no matter what, with, with one exception. If, if it just isn't getting to what you and your client talked about, even taking into account whatever the mediator's input, if it doesn't get to that, don't get mad. Don't get frustrated, which happens a lot. Walk away. You don't have to slam your books down and walk away, but just say, no, well, I guess we'll just have to try this case because some cases are meant to be tried. Some cases to get the amount of money you want, it's going to have to be a jury that tells you that that's what the case is worth. That's just the way it is. And, and treat it as an opportunity. Great, they're giving me an opportunity to get trial experience. And, and that's the way you have to look at it. And if um, uh, the, the one exception I talked about, sometimes you have clients that just won't go to trial. You know, and, or yeah. you know your client's going to be awful. But if you know the client's being awful, then you shouldn't be offended by that kind of an offer. They probably deposed your client at that point and know and your client's going to be awful. Which, which is, um, I know, it kind of leads to something else, but it's related to this. You really need to try and step out of your shoes when you assess your client. 
really any witness, but particularly your client, how's this person going to appear before the, uh, uh, a jury in a jury trial or a judge in a bench trial? Um, I had a client, and again, I use the same co-counsel, this old, uh, more experienced attorney. The client came in and met with me, and unbeknownst to me, he then met with the other attorney as well because we weren't partners. I didn't like this guy at first. He had ADD. He was off the wall. Um, I just, I wasn't, I, I thought he had a good case, but I just wasn't crazy about him. And then I found out that he met with my, my cohort, and I talked to him. He felt the same way. Hmm. We said, well, let's bring him in and meet him together. Well, as we got to know him and understand him, we started to like him. We said, oh, no, no, okay, now we see what the issues are. The problem is the jury only saw him once. Their first impression of him was what our first impression was. Oh, no. And so it was a, a bad result. So the, the lesson there is uh, also um, go with your, don't ignore your instinct. If you've met the person, you don't care for him, why do you want that headache? Right. Be willing to say no to clients. Yeah. Which is tough for new new practitioners because you don't know when your next case is going to come through the doors and you got payroll to make and lights to keep on. And so and you might what, be what happens if that that client, then you take them on, they become a troublemaker. Right. You know, at some point you have to make hard decisions. Uh, I've There's been clients that don't respect your staff. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then they talk to you. They're just apple pie and ice cream but the, the the but i i have no reason to not believe my staff when they tell me he just cusses us out he does this he does that and at some point it's just life's too short you just can't handle that case no no those are the people that cause problems throughout the process and then cause problems after the case is closed anyway you just don't need that headache yeah that, that's a real problem too the ones that cause trouble after the case yeah um well so for these 10 Steve tool tips. Um, are these tips that you think cut the exact same way at arbitration or are they different for mediation than arbitration? Very similar um, at arbitration. Uh, in other words, you got to know your case thoroughly. You have to be prepared at arbitration hearing, particularly with lots of, uh, even if it's mandatory, if you're looking for the high amount or if it's UAM and there's higher limits, you need to give serious thought to having your doctor testify via Zoom. Um, in fact, I would think that's way more important at arbitration, yeah, where the arbitrator is making the decision, than it is at mediation. And uh, I'll give an example. Um, when you have the doc, unless you say it's a doctor, when you have the doctor testify, and are we talking treating doctor or are we talking expert? Either one. Okay. If, if it's a key treating doctor, or if you went and got a forensic doctor to review all the medical records. You know, it depends on the case. Um, if they testify, I get to see them, judge, you know, how, you know, for myself, their credibility. I get to see them cross-examined, which I think is important. And I get to ask questions if I feel there's some key things that weren't covered, you know, by, by either attorney. And that's important for me in making decisions. If all I have is a, a report, even if it's a 30, 40 page report, there may be things I think are important that aren't covered in the report. They, they may have given an opinion that I want to really explore 
Doctor, I understand what your opinion is, but tell me why. Why, why can you say that on a more probable than not basis? Um, so, I had a case, UIM arbitration. It must have been UIM because the limits weren't the issue. I don't remember. The defense had a, a known CR35 doctor testify, orthopedic surgeon. Um, I had his report. His report says what, what they, they always, always say. say. <laughs> <laughs> and... He did pretty good in in his testimony. You know, I mean, he supported, he's smooth. The guy's smooth. But he was really doing a lot. Well, the guy never followed up with his doctor. He didn't do this. The doctor doesn't say this. The doctor doesn't say that. Well, if you read the records, it's the physical therapist that had the contact with him. The plaintiff called the physical therapist to testify. I don't remember now if it was in person or Zoom, quite frankly. Uh, probably in person, answered all those questions. And I could judge the credibility. I mean, there's physical therapists that are kind of flaky, and there's physical therapists that have been doing it for 30 years, and they know what they're talking about. This was one of the latter. And when you went through his CV, his curriculum vitae, he had done some big-time stuff. He had testified a lot. And so he, he was very impressive, even though he was only a physical therapist. But far more impactful than if I just had a, a report from him. I mean, far more. So I I think people forget in this day and age, particularly of Zoom, but arbitrations in general, they forget about the value of having someone come in and testify live. I did a case two weeks ago, three weeks ago. Liability was an issue. And this was an expert. The plaintiffs, two plaintiffs, pastor and driver, were both deposed. The defendant was deposed. The plaintiffs testified via Zoom. The defendant did not. And it was really a black and white thing. It either happened the way the plaintiff said or it happened the way the defense said. There were circumstantial elements on each party's side that supported their statements. But it wasn't like... They went both ways. It was tough. It was a tough case. And I ultimately ruled for the plaintiff because there were some credibility issues that the deposition didn't cover. For instance, um, the guy was driving a commercial truck and the plaintiff had a photograph that was submitted of the defendant with his door open as though he was getting out of his truck, seemingly holding a cell phone in his hand. And it was like, the distance was you to me. There's no way that the driver, and the driver is looking right at the camera. It was a cell phone camera. Yet the driver's deposition said he'd never seen the plaintiff before. Nobody, you know, he never met him, et cetera. And I'm going, how do you get this photo? Yeah, of you, how did he get this photo? It just didn't make sense to me. And the plaintiff said he, the the defendant told him he was on he was on the cell phone calling nine one one. He did have a cell phone in his hand. It seemed to be a cell phone. The photo wasn't that great. I couldn't be certain. Um, but then there was an issue where on the defense side. There was a, a building with a white wall or a gray wall, and the truck after the impact was backing out and hit this guy in, in, a, in a gas station parking lot. Said he pulled back up into the spot. And so the photo was taken at such an angle that he'd say, well, that's not a gray wall. It looks like there's a car that you see through the windshield. I, I said to myself, that's a valid point. But what I realized in the testimony, nobody asked, and therefore there was no answer as to how far 
into the parking stall he, he pulled? Did he just pull a little bit in or did he pull all the way up against the, the wheel stop? And if he did, if it was all the way up against the wheel stop, then you'd think you'd see the side of the building. But the angle was such that if he was only back a few feet, it was such you would have seen the car. So I just went, if they'd called him to testify, it may have been a different story, but they didn't. And that's that. So right. I rule in favor of the plaintiff. So, um, uh, and I'm sorry for interrupting, but that's a, a really great point. And I think a lot of times the benefit for plaintiffs in arbitration is not having to call these witnesses and having to, to electing to have them uh, testify via declaration. And what you're saying it is, as a, as an arbitrator, it is so much more powerful to have them in, give live testimony than it is to testify via declaration. Yes and no. If it's a controversial issue, yes. Sometimes, you know, you're, you're calling lay witness and say, well, this is what I observe. I've known this person for 20 years. He, oh, sure. You know, no, a declaration is fine in that regard. I mean, like the treating doctors, for example. Well, a Cairo. And again, it depends on the value of the claim. If, if you've got a case with a six-month of chiropractic care, uh, $9,000 in medical bills, uh, probably having someone testify live is meaningless. If you have the doctor saying, when he stopped, when I discharged him, he had not reached maximum medical improvement, he's going to need this kind of treatment for X period of time. And it's, and you're making a large future uh, claim for medical specials, then it's probably important to have that doctor testify, or at least you talk to him and see if he's persuaded you. You know, you can avoid a lot of expense if, as an attorney, you talk to the person, you ask the tough questions, you assess for yourself, can I sell this? Uh, for instance, the number of times I see, let's say accident occurred in 2018. Lawsuits filed 2020. The last treatment was 2020. It's now 2023. In the, in the last treatment, the doctor says, you're going to need about $1,500 worth of therapy or this or that every year for the next 10 years. And you see the person has not had any treatment since then. Well, that's a credibility issue. Now, in reality, it may be, I can't afford it. Right. But it doesn't matter. The, 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 the doctor needs to explain that. Now, in that case, if it were me, I probably just wouldn't go for that future care. Gotcha. And you don't, uh, and then you don't need them. But if you've got something, um, particularly the the doctor does his thing, gives you his report, his declaration, it's good declaration, but then the defense comes up with the CR thirty five report and addresses certain things. I will tell you, either have your doctor do an addendum to address those, or as an arbitrator, I'd rather hear him testify. It's going because probably the defense doctor will not be called to testify and it's going to be more impactful for the plaintiff if, if the doctor can do a good job rebutting that. And frequently it's like, no, 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 no. Is the, is, is the, is the defense doctor ever right? Could that be sure? But we're talking what's more probable than not. And that is a maybe that, you know, he gives his explanation and it makes sense. And again, if you're asking for enough money, then it's worth the expense. If you're not, then then it's not. Right. You had also mentioned, I, I think this was a really cool kind of anecdote, but um, the the attorney that um, worked for O.J. Simpson that you met, do you want to talk about that? Um, 
Sure. Johnny Cochran, who's mm-hmm. now deceased. Uh, he was a well-known defense criminal uh, uh, attorney uh, as well, representing O.J. Simpson. And, and, and it was a great plaintiff's personal injury attorney. And we had, when I was president, we had him up here for some seminar. I, I, I don't remember the specifics. So we had a big luncheon and boy, it was a big turnout. You know, people wanted, this was right during the, right after the OJ resolve, if I'm not mistaken, or soon after, and people wanted to hear him. But he, he was asked what he feels is really critical in getting good results in personal injury trials. And he said in any trial, and he says the three P's, triple P, preparation, preparation, preparation and he couldn't emphasize that more that that is just critical you need to out prepare the other side you need to anticipate everything you need to be ready for anything that takes place and um it's hard to argue with that great advice all right and in closing um i i ask all my guests how do you how do you define being an iron mind attorney well, first of all, we had to look up the definition because I wasn't familiar <laughs> with, with that. And my understanding is it's it's a mind that is resilient to fear, anxiety, and, and uh, indecision. I think the first thing to understand, everyone has fear, anxiety, and indecision. How many times do you hear an actor in a, on a talk show talk about the butterflies they go through, even though it may be the thousandth performance that they've done on Broadway? Um, it just, that's life fear we're afraid of failure we're afraid of uh, losing we're afraid of making a mistake whatever it may be and that leads to anxiety and then the two combined lead to indecision so what do you do when you have fear and anxiety you do nothing and i have gone through trainings in my life that have taught me there's reasons and there's results And I take that approach that we have to look for results in cases, resolutions, solutions. And um, in if you let fear get in the way, you're not going to get results. If you let anxiety get in the way, you're not going to get results. But we all have indecision. And so you have to do, and I find by, by, by being this, this iron mind attorney, not that I, I still have indecision. I still procrastinate, but I, I adopted in short ways. I look at my desk and there's piles of to do, and this always gets pushed aside. This I do right away. This gets pushed aside. And as soon as I recognize, I keep pushing that aside. And what I, so what I do is. I move it to the front. I say, obviously, I'm resisting that for a reason. But I've just developed the ability to just go, I've got to deal with it. That's all there is to it. And that's that iron mind, that strong mind. Don't don't procrastinate. Fear's still there. It's always going to be there. Anxiety may still be there. But I will tell you that once you pull it in and do it, you feel great. I, I mean, you you go, why did I put that off? for as long as I put that off. And uh, so I, I think that to me, that iron mind is just work through it, just get it done. Put all the fear, all the anxiety out of your mind, 
think about results. Go, I have to get results. How am I going to get results? I've got to work on this thing that I'm resisting and just go do it. I, how many times have you talked to somebody? Maybe you're giving them a proposal and they go, I need to think about that. How long do you need to think about it? That's what I would, that would be my response. Oh, two weeks. Okay. I'm curious. Does that mean that for the next two weeks, you're going to do nothing but think about that? Or does that mean you're going to go one day less than two weeks doing whatever you do? And then when that deadline comes up, you'll think about it. And they usually chuckle. And my experience is make a decision. Now it's one thing if it's something you need data and you don't have the data, but quite frankly, most people use that as an excuse, reasons or results. Reason, I don't have enough data. Yeah, you do. On some level, you know, just make a decision. And I think an iron-minded attorney is better at making those decisions and just acknowledging fear, acknowledging anxiety and saying the resulting indecision is not okay. Because it's going to be there tomorrow. It's going to be there next week. It's going to be there next month. It's not going to go away and just work through it. That's great. That's a great definition. Um, do you think that this, this same indecision, uh, fear, anxiety that leads to indecision is a big part of why young attorneys don't try cases? Oh, it was for me. <laughs> oh gosh. Yes. That and money. Yeah. Uh, you know, not having the money, but then I go to, and I mentioned this to you, if you're a young attorney and you've got a case that's, that's, that's a good value associated with a more senior attorney, you're going to take less of a fee, but you're going to learn and don't just associate them, turn the file over to them and just wait to get a third of the result or whatever, a third of his fee, work the case with them, attend the, the depositions or whether it's zoom or otherwise, and learn offered can I do the research on that? You know, and, and work as a team we develop a, a, um, a plan, how you can work things together. Uh, that's how you learn. And that's how you can be a sole practitioner and get experience and, and develop as a trial attorney. Um, whereas if you're part of a 20 person firm, you'd have the people all there around you where you could do that, but you, you don't have that luxury. So, uh, sure. Young attorneys, fear is, I'm impressed by young attorneys that mediate with me that are just saying, I don't I'm prepared for trial. When I, they come to mediation, I know if they're prepared for trial, I can see. And those who are prepared for trial, it's like the fear factor isn't as big because they've prepared and they're, they're still, it's an unknown as to what the result will be, but they've done their homework. They've prepared and it's not, it's not as fearful as it would otherwise be. And anxiety, I guess there's two ways to look at it. It's like change. People fear change. You lose a job. Well, another way to look at change is it's an opportunity. Maybe on some level that job wasn't right for me. Now I have an opportunity to get a new job, create a better situation for myself. And so it's, it's the, uh, that anxiety kind of gets in the way. But if you look at it as well, it's not anxiety. It's just, it's an opportunity. Change your mindset. Yes. Yeah, a scary opportunity, but an opportunity. Yeah. Well, I think that that's a, a great, um, 
outlook to have. I think that a lot of these young attorneys or um, experienced attorneys who maybe have never dipped their toes into personal injury and have been contemplating it, listening to this, might take this advice and run with it. And um, uh, I think the the best tidbit that, that we could take away from this, if you don't know what you're doing with personal injury, you can always associate with an attorney who does. And you can still learn and keep your client's interests protected. You're not hurting people from rolling the dice and losing on a motion for summary judgment and then having a malpractice claim. Um, you, you just need people to be involved, and a big part of that is having a network. And so thank you, Steve, for being a part of this um, this episode. Thank you for your candor with what young attorneys can learn from you and from, from your tips on your website. Please check out Steve's website, and thank you all for listening. Thank you. My pleasure. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Iron Mind podcast. Please remember to like, review, and subscribe. And thanks for listening.